Good morning, church. Today's scripture reading is Genesis chapter 13, verses 1 through 18. God's word reads, So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev with his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abram had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and gold. From the Negev he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abram's herders and Lot's. The Canaanites and Perizzites were also living in the land at the time. So Abram said to Lot, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me, or between your herders and mine, for we are close relatives. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked around and saw that the whole plain of the Jordan towards Zoar was well watered, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and set out towards the east. The two men parted company. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, while Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Now the people of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. The Lord said to Abram after Lot had parted from him, Look around from where you are, to the north and to the south, to the east and the west. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go, walk through the length and breadth of the land, for I am giving it to you. So Abram went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron, where he pitched his tents. There he built an altar to the Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. If you came in late uh, before we pray for the message, just a reminder that uh, tonight, following our assembly, uh, our missionary family to Santiago, Chile. Uh, they have been with us for, for several weeks now and have been a blessing to them, and we hope uh, we have uh, been a blessing to them as they've been a blessing to us. And uh, they're going to be leaving on, on Tuesday, and so this is going to be our last Sunday together. And uh, tonight, after the assembly, we're going to have a fellowship, and we want you to, to bring your favorite foods, uh, finger foods, as we encourage and, and affirm and love and embrace and all of the things that are really, really important for missionaries to receive when they come back on furlough from their supporting, from their supporting family. And this is going to be sort of, for most of us, as, at least as a large body, our last chance to be able to affirm them in the work that they're doing to expand the borders of God's kingdom in the world, especially in a place uh, like Chile, which is so, 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 so far away from here, and Santiago, kind of on the southern end of Chile, and we want to, to encourage them, we want to pray for them, we want to uh, you know, say God's speed and, and, and let them know that they are never a forgotten piece of our church family, even though they are so far away. So that's going to be tonight at 7 after our 6 o'clock assembly tonight. Now, um, you know, it, it, as well as I do, if you've been reading the Bible uh, for any uh, stretch of time, that there are chapters and there are parts of chapters that really stand out to you. 
And these chapters sort of become our favorite, and, and we go to them a lot. And then we come to a chapter like Genesis chapter 13, where there's not really anything you know, sexy happening. It, it's, it's really kind of a, 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 a chapter that you don't really hear a whole lot of sermons about. It's, it's a chapter that, uh, that you don't really think about a lot when you think about God's Word. But one of the things that I've discovered God's Word methodically, verse by verse, and working my way through it, is that there are no throwaway chapters in the Bible. And the case is so true this, this morning as we look at Genesis chapter 13. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head and all of us join our hearts together as we go to God and ask Him to bless us in this time of study. Father, we're grateful for all of the ways that you come in and out of our life each day. And there are times, Father, when it is so palpable, so detectable that you have, have come into our life, that the blessing, your presence. And then there are times, Father, when we go through this life, and it, sometimes it's as if we have blinders on. Sometimes we get so carried away with our own agenda and our own activity and expending our own strength upon this planet that we don't have our, our radar up, we don't have our antenna up to recognize that we go nowhere in your world without you. And this is part of what Abraham is, is teaching us today in terms of, of, of living according to your promises. And so, Father, what we ask in the name of Jesus in this next few minutes is that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear and bless us in this study in such a way that that our trust is deepened in your presence. Father, thank you for the cross, and for the gospel, and for forgiveness, and for the grace that makes it so. In this we pray in the name of Jesus and all the church said. You know, when a baby is, uh, is born into the world, one of the most dangerous things that can happen to that child in the world is for the parents of that child, the mother and the father, to abandon or even to abdicate their place at the center of that child's life. Now the child's going to fight that, and the child is going to demand to be at the center of the universe, but the parents are going to patiently and lovingly maintain their position as the authorities and the teachers and the protectors and the providers for that child. And if you've been around small children, you'll know that at some point they are going to defy the parents and they are going to shout no with sort of a clenched fist in the face of that parent. They're going to say no to the big person, but the, the parent, but the parent is going to be the parent. The child will not, a child cannot do anything to deserve the great love that a parent bestows on it. And, and the child will discover through space and time although probably uh, sort of unconsciously at first, that there is a, a tremendous amount of freedom. There is a tremendous security in trusting those parents that allows that little baby to just be a kid. To be a kid in security and provision and love and discovery the world at large. Now this reminds us, when we look at this sort of progression with parents and small children, it reminds us of something that the Bible teaches from the very beginning of its pages. In the first few chapters of Genesis, it's a message that comes streaming through. And it's, it's easy to remember, it's just four words. That faith develops from grace. 
The faith develops from grace. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, the Bible's first book, teach that God created the heavens and the earth and everything that, that walks the earth, including human beings. As hard as it is to believe today that when God created it, in, in the, when it was in its uh, embryonic stages, that it was without scar and it was without blemish. But the scars and the blemishes do come into the world. The biblical language for it in Genesis chapter 3 is the thorns and the thistles that come. And the, the, the scars and the blemishes do come when that first couple, Adam and Eve, eat of the forbidden fruit. And what they're basically doing is saying no to God and yes to the lie that God does not have their best interests at heart. And by the time we get sin entering into the world through that saying no to God and saying yes to the lie, we're only three chapters deep into the book, into the Bible. And because of that, that defiance, that lack of trust, they have to act, exit the Garden of Eden as that sin is entering into the world. And not long after that, they, there are children that come up, and at some point, these two brothers get into a scuffle with, with each other over worship and, and God's favor uh, falling on one's sacrifice and not on the other, and Cain kills Abel. And he is sent even further away from the garden, and he becomes a wanderer upon the earth. We're just one chapter later in the Bible. We're in Genesis chapter 4 now. We go two chapters later to Genesis chapter 6, and the world has become so evil that God is grieved in his heart. God is brokenhearted. God is, every time I say that out loud, it, it's like saying it for the first time, that God becomes so grieved in his heart over what we have become and that he has put us on the earth that the decision is made for the flood, the Noahic flood, and Noah is and his family are the only ones seen righteous and the only ones that are saved from that flood. But the world has become so evil that God has grieved in his heart that he's put humans on the earth. And so God begins again with Noah and his family that the humans are humans. And sin has entered into their, their life. And it's not long after the flood that we begin to read about the fact that they want to get into God's face, that they want to get into God's face again and say no. So they build this tower, and God, in mercy, scatters them across the face of the earth as he confuses their language. But then at the end of Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 27 and going all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 32, there is this genealogy, a genealogy of Seth who happens to be the third son of Adam and Eve. You have Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. Cain is left. They have another son by the name of Seth. And Seth, we are told in Genesis chapter 4, where we read of his birth, he is the one who calls on the name of the Lord. So now we're at the genealogy of Seth, and now we discover Abraham. Abraham is in this line of Seth that calls upon the name of the Lord, but... Abraham is living among the idols in Ur of the Chaldees. His family, not just his wife, but other members of his family have taken on the names of, of the pagan gods in which they live. They've taken on the names of the idols. And one other thing that we read, and again, it's not a throwaway verse. It's not an incidental fact. What we're told is that Sarai, uh, Abraham's wife, is barren. She's unable to have children. And so we see this line that's calling on the name of the Lord, kind of coming to a dead end. And this is where we see it plain as day on the pages of the Bible. Grace. 
God calls Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees, to, to leave the forest of idols that surrounds him, and to go to the land that God is going to show Abraham. And God is going to bless Abraham. He is going to bless Abraham greatly, even though Abraham lives in this world, this forest of idols. But Abraham hears that call because he has figured out that somehow the world of the idols is not working. And Abraham leaves, though not perfectly, because he's just come to that realization that the forest of idols, the world of idols does not work, that they're not filling that God-shaped hole that he has in his heart. And it's this Abraham in leaving Ur of the Chaldees, again, not perfectly, but he's leaving Ur of the Chaldees to follow God's call, to go to the place that God shows him, that becomes the exemplar, the, the, the model of faith in the entire Bible. He becomes the one that's lifted up before our eyes as the kind of person we need to be when it comes to faith in God. And so Paul says in, in Galatians chapter 3, he says, those who have faith are the children of whom? Say, the children of whom, church? Of Abraham. Now this brings up a very important irony in the Bible. Abraham becomes the biblical model of saving faith. He is the model of faith. If you want to know who you're supposed to emulate when it comes to faith in God, faith in the promises, trusting God, it's Abraham. But he does this without owning a Bible because there weren't any. Now, generations later, Moses is going to deliver the Ten Commandments. He's going to, uh, to deliver Torah, the first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, to Israel. But Abraham is making the faith history that Moses will later write down. Abraham is making the history. So why bring this up? Well, I think it teaches us something really, really important about faith and the nature of faith, and it's this. Faith is more than obedience. Faith is also trust, and trust involves a profound relationship. Now, if you read the Bible as only this instruction manual and nothing more, then at best, you are a moralist, and at worst, a Pharisee. Meaning that you have made the Bible about you and not about God. It's about trying to discover what it is I'm supposed to do, and you know you can discover what it is that you're supposed to do and do that without ever having a relationship with God. You make the Bible about you and not about God. You follow all the rules. You obey all the commands, even obsessively tithing the smallest of seeds. But you don't necessarily know God or love God. And when you fail in following all of that, you're devastated, sometimes beyond repair, because the transgression is bigger than God's grace for you. Now, when you find a command in the Bible, are you supposed to do it? Absolutely. Absolutely. But here's the thing to remember. I can't live a perfect life in the fallen world, but I can live a life of faith. And all that Abraham has that makes him this person of faith, this exemplar of faith, a model of faith, 
is that he has the revelation of God himself. God revealing himself in a call. God revealing himself in unconditional promises. God revealing himself over and over and over again through grace. And that is ultimately what the Bible does for humans. It reveals the character and nature of God in the universe and we fall in love with God or we don't. You see, obedience does not always breed trust, does it? You can obey a, de a despised tyrant and do it out of fear, not out of love. You can obey that despised tyrant, but the first chance you get to disobey and to rebel, that's the thing you're going to do. But trust, on the other hand, once, you, once somebody is revealed to you and that trust begins to be formed, what happens is that trust begins to breed the obedience in perfect most of the time, though it be, that trust breeds obedience. Paul will say to the church in Rome that there is this obedience that comes from faith. Faith being this trust in God. This God that is revealed to you as a lover and a shepherd and a, a creator and a father in all of these different ways that the Bible reveals God. That is what we have relationship with. And you observe this in Abraham. You observe this in Abraham as Abraham grows in trust, trusting God. And he becomes incredibly obedient as his trust, as his trust begins to develop and to soar and to become gigantic and massive. And it's, it's just this huge thing in his life. As, as he becomes in, uh, more trusting of God, he becomes incredibly obedient. As we see in the binding of Isaac, that event in Genesis chapter 22. Faith is seen in obedience that reveals the trust that God has our best interests at heart. Adam and Eve were not obedient because they did not believe that God was to be trusted. That he didn't have their best interests at heart. When we were looking at the letter of James, the sermon series that we just finished, one of the things that James says over and over and over again is that trusting faith, a faith that is profound in, in who God is and, and how God has come streaming into your life, that that faith will always generate obedience. And this is where Abraham takes us in Genesis chapter 13. And what we see are three life choices. The first is the choice to return. Number two, the choice of a departure. And then thirdly, the choice to reveal. We begin with the return. One of the things we saw last week is that Abraham, is, it, faith is a, is a process of discovery. He is discovering God more and more profoundly as this being that he is interacting with. And what we saw last week is that, is, is that Abraham begins to face a couple of threats that begin to test his knowledge of what he believes God is truly all about. The first threat is this severe famine in the land. The land, the promised land, is now uh, under question. Is, is the, land going to, the promised land going to be able to support me and sustain me? And Abraham says, I'm not so sure that it will, and so he heads to Egypt. And as he gets near Egypt, he comes in contact with the second threat, which is to fear for his life, because Sarai is beautiful, and Pharaoh will want her for himself. And so fear for Abraham, as it is for us, reveals all of these idols in his heart. And the man who is supposed to be a blessing to the nations has actually become a curse to the nations. 
And so as Genesis 13 opens, what we have is Abraham leaving Egypt. He is wealthy in livestock and silver and gold, which is a lot of foreshadowing. He goes back to Bethel in the heart of the promised land. The language, actually, when you read this, the, the language of the text emphasizes that he is going back to where he once was. He, it's actually, the text says, it's actually, he's going to that place where he was that's between Bethel and Ai. And then it says, it's the place where he had been earlier before going down to Egypt, and it's the place where he built that altar. And so he goes back to that place, and in Genesis 13, verse 4, he does something again. There Abraham or Abram, called on the name of the Lord. Do you know what that return from Egypt is? What do you call it when you're going in one direction and you come to a halt and go, I'm not going to go that way any further, and you turn around and go in the opposite direction? Repentance. The return from Egypt is a repentance trek. We looked at Hebrews chapter 11 last week. Abraham, as you know, is, is looking for a city. He's looking for a world with a foundation whose architect and builder is God. That's one of the reasons he's left Ur of the Chaldees and gone to the promised land. He is looking for a, a, a world. He's looking for a city whose foundation is God. And Abraham will not proceed in life without standing on a rock foundation. And that's why the psalmist says in Psalm 31, verse 2, Since you are my rock and fortress, for the sake of your name, lead and guide me. In Psalm 37, beginning in verse 23, The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him, though he may stumble, because we're not going to live perfectly, but we can live by faith. Though he may stumble, he will not, what? Fall. Why? For the Lord upholds him with his hand. You see, that's what repentance is all about. Repentance is returning to God as the foundation for your life. The reason that your life went off course, the reason your life sort of, you know, the, the wheels started coming off the wagon is because you were no longer, God was no longer the rock underneath your feet. He was no longer the foundation for your life. So you started going to other foundations, realized that that was sand, that that was shaky, and it returned. That's repentance. It's returning to God as the foundation of your life. It's the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15 coming home to the father as the foundation of his life. And when God is the base, when God is the most fundamental and primary foundation for life, when you know you're standing on God who is rock underneath your feet, you begin to make different kinds of decisions. And it's at this point that even though he's gone back to that place between Bethel and Ai, that the threats return to Abraham. Which teaches us something really kind of important about life, is that the threats never go away. And ironically, it's the same threat. But a different angle. Again, the question is whether or not the land, the land is going to be able to sustain them. He's got a lot, of, a lot of stock. He's got a lot of silver, a lot of gold. Lot has the same thing. His nephew has a lot of the same thing. The threat is, will the land be able to support them and sustain them? But then it's ramped up, which brings in kind of the second element of the threat. They're beginning to quarrel. At least the herdsmen are beginning to quarrel which means that the family is being divided, which brings up the third threat that's mentioned, 
Moses reminds the people of Israel that during this period of time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites specifically are in the land. They are a danger. And all this leads to a quarrel between Abraham's people and Lot's people. But remember that, that faith, profound faith, is a process of discovery. You're discovering God. You're discovering that God is faithful. You're discovering that God can be trusted. That God, how many, how many times has God come through with some kind of blessing in your life just when you needed to know it? And you think back about all of those things as information and data and experiences of God as a relationship, as a father, as a as somebody that keeps his promises, that, that somehow influences the way that you live in faith in the moment or in the future. It's because of the things that you've learned about him in the past. It's a process of discovery. And none of those experiences of God are thrown away. And so Abraham does the unthinkable as the patriarch of this family by asking Lot to choose which land does he want to move his flocks to. Something incredibly amazing is happening here to Abraham's faith. He is reasoning that although he loses land, that God can be trusted to keep his promise and that this promised land is something that he will possess. It doesn't make sense. He's going to give it away, but God's going to make sure he gets it. it doesn't, it's counterintuitive. But faith is a, is a process of discovery. And it's the same logic that he can give it away, but somehow he gets it all back. It's the same logic that allows him to climb a mountain in Genesis chapter 22 and bind Isaac knowing that Isaac is the son of promise. And as God gets bigger, so does his faith in God. So that all of a sudden Abraham is walking by faith and not by sight. Which now leads us to Lot and the, the departure, a, a, a choice to depart. The text says that Lot lifted up his eyes and he sees the land in direction of Zoar, which is way, way, way down south, south of the, uh, of the Dead Sea, and he sees it as something beautiful and desirable. The problem, though, is that the text says that he goes east and then starts heading south. The problem is that this moves him away from the promised land. He's moving away from the heart of the promised land. He's moving away from the promised land to the area south of the Dead Sea. And this begins to set a trajectory for the life of Lot. He is headed for the place where people do not call on the name of the Lord. You'll remember some chapters later that there's this conversation between God and Abraham about are there any righteous people in that region that might allow God to save the place. He is moving from a place where they call upon the name of God to a place where nobody calls at all on the name of God. And the basis for leaving Ur of the Chaldees for the promised land is not enough of a basis to stay in the promised land. But he thinks that moving all that he has to that place that's the thing that's going to make his life. That's the thing that's going to make his life. 
And there's this little parenthetical statement, which is a time reference, that all of this happened between Abraham and Lot, and Lot moving towards Sodom in, in, in this chapter. In the next chapter, he's in the city. And then by the time you get to chapter 19, he's in the gates of Sodom. It's a reminder that this move is just a temporary benefit. It's not going to last. And we'll talk about that in the coming weeks. And that leaves us now with the revelation. Again, God comes to Abraham after Lot departs. And you know the area between Bethel and Ai is... Uh, it really, it's a kind of a spectacular lookout point where you can see the land in all of these different directions. And God says to him in verse 14, Look around from where you are to the north and to the south and to the east and to the west. All the land you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust, then your offspring could be counted. Go and walk through the length and breadth of the land for I am giving it to you. Abraham, with his feet firmly established on God as the foundation for all of life, was willing to give all of it up in order to end a fight. Abraham is willing to give it all up, lot you choose, in order to end the quarrel. And in the end, he gets it all. And it points uh, to another time when there is this, this greater Abraham from Nazareth who was taken to a high place and was made the same offer. The irony was that it was already his, but the offer is made, if you will bow down and worship me, I'll give it to you, all of it. And this greater Abraham, whose name in Hebrew is Yeshua, to us in English, Jesus, says to the evil one, you worship God only. And it's this same one who was willing to give up everything in order to end a quarrel between God and man to leave everything that was his, to leave everything that was his as, as the rights of a son, to leave everything and to make himself impoverished and to make himself poor in order to end the quarrel between God and man that went all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And that's why Paul says to the church in Corinth, kind of reminding them of some of this theology, he says, you know the grace you know the grace. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though He was rich, yet for your sake, yet for your sake He became poor so that you, through His poverty, might become what? Rich. That's what, that's what Abraham points to. A Christ who was willing in faith and in trust to leave all that made him rich and made him perfectly joy-filled, harmonious with God the Father and God the Spirit, was willing to leave all of that 
and to lose it all and to experience all that he experienced leading up to the cross and experience the cross in order in order for the quarrel to end between God and man. And in the end, he was exalted at the right hand of God. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. Perhaps there, there are just some ways that, that you've been trying to, to live in Ur of the Chaldees, that you've been trying to live surrounded by all of the idols and trying to stuff those idols into that God-shaped hole that you have in your heart. And one of the things that Abraham teaches us is that it doesn't work. It's a barren life. It's an empty life. It is, that's the reason he hears the call. He has figured it out. Why would he leave Ur of the Chaldees and follow God to a place that he doesn't know where he's going to follow a God to a place that God is going to show him if the idols work? They don't. And it's imperfect and at times it's messy in Abraham's life as we'll see in the coming weeks, but he goes. And through that process of discovery, he grows in faith to where he trusts, he trusts God to make good on every promise that is made. And the same is made to us. Every promise in Christ Jesus is true. And if there are ways that we can minister to you, that we can help you see, that we can help you leave your Ur of the Chaldees to find those promises that are in the man Christ Jesus, some of our shepherds are going to be down here at the front. We'd love to talk to you about these things as we stand and praise God together. My Jesus, my Savior, Lord, there is none like